Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today we are joined by a great guest and somebody I've known for a really long time. Uh, It's Chris Giancarlo, the former chairman of the CFTC. Uh, Before that, he was an executive at GFI Group, and he is the author of this great book, Crypto Dad, which I highly recommend to everybody. It's about his journey, um, his life, and and how he has become involved in the Digital Dollar Project, which is something we will get to. Hey, Chris, how are you? Great, Matt. Really good to be with you as I was getting ready for this. It's funny you said we've known each other a long time. I was actually thinking back to when we met and I think it was right, you know, around the meltdown of Wall Street back in 2008, and then the the the, uh, the proposal to Dodd Frank. The proposals eventually led to Dodd Frank. We spoke a lot back then, so it's been a while, anyway. Yeah, uh, at yeah. least uh, 14, 15 years. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I have yeah. fond memories of it as well. Um, getting lunch with you at Francis Tavern in downtown Manhattan. Um, yeah. And yeah. when you were at GFI. Um, yeah. So uh, it it has been a long time. Um, I'm wondering, um, just to give listeners sort of like some background on you, I know you're a proud boy from New Jersey. Um, Can can you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up and and what your family life was like? Sure. I actually uh, don't come from a finance or regulatory background. My dad was a physician, uh, was uh, what they call a head neck uh, surgeon, ear, nose and throat, uh, otolaryngology was his field. And um, he practiced in New York City and I had also had an office in New Jersey where we lived, uh, and I grew up in Bergen County, which is the northeasternmost county in the state, just outside of New York City. And and in my childhood was a lot of going in and out of the city. My, in addition to being a, a physician, my dad was a proud musician, was a violinist. And uh, back in the '60s, there used to be a great jazz brunch club in the village called the Cookery. And uh, my dad would do rounds at his hospital, which is the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary on 14th Street on Saturdays and Sundays. And he would load his four sons and his, and his wife, my mother, in the car, take us, drop us off at the cookery and give us a bunch of crayons and <laughs> and, and, and paper to write on. And we would draw and listen to jazz and while my dad made the rounds at his nearby hospital. And I think that still both a love of music and perhaps... Uh, an aversion to going into medicine. So I didn't follow the family tradition. Um, I went into finance. I, I actually went into law, uh, graduated from Vanderbilt Law School in 1984 and went to work uh, on Wall Street with an old, an, an old venerable firm, uh, Mudge Rose, and then eventually went to another firm called Curtis Malley Prevost, uh, where I did a lot of cross-border work. And I spent some time, about three years in London, and um, six, wound up practicing law for 16 years, mostly in a technology-based practice, was a lawyer, eventually became a partner in a large New York law firm. Uh, but then in the year 2000, uh, one of my technology clients uh, was being purchased by a young Wall Street startup that was building some of the first electronic trading platforms for a complex wholesale financial product called Swaps. And in fact, they were the leading platform for a type of swap that subsequently become quite notorious called a credit default swap. Now, they were in a trading house. They didn't maintain positions in swaps. They operated the, the marketplace where those swaps traded. They were, you might say, the exchange for these products that didn't trade on an exchange. And they built basically a wide area network, a global network of trading uh, platforms around the world that was a combination of electronic and human intermediated trading and by 2008, we, we, we raised private equity. My job there was to uh, focus on external development. We raised private equity. We took the company public in 2006. Right. And this, but by is, 2000, the, uh, this is the over-the-counter market that people might have heard of, where it's basically uh, 
private deals between very large institutions and banks and investors. That's right. So, you know, what folks are familiar with is the exchange traded markets. And those markets work very well, often for smaller size, retail size transaction for highly commoditized trading. But going back to the beginning of exchanges, just walk through any old exchange and look up and you'll see balconies and galleries above where the off the floor trades took place. That's where there's a privately negotiated trade, often for a large size, large quantity that can't be digested on the floor without moving the market. So that's where the notion of over the counter or off the floor trading took place. And yeah. every mature market has some degree of, of over the counter trading to, so that it doesn't move the entire market if it's a large size. And when, when large banks trade with large banks, they do it often in these over the counter. Yeah. One of the jobs during, I did during Dodd-Frank was to explain to people in Washington that over the counter doesn't mean under the table, <laughs> that it's a, it's a legitimate uh, uh, feature of any financial market. In fact, um, uh, the London Stock Exchange went through a period in the 1980s where it actually sought to give absolute transparency for these over the counter trades and it actually almost shut down the market. Yeah. And so they had to honor these practices that are age old, but there's regulation around it. And when when the market went into financial crisis in 2008, uh, Congress took up many aspects of that crisis. But one of the things it did was to bring that over the counter market in in derivatives under the aegis of the CFTC. And I was a supporter, as you know, Matt, of, of that uh, regulatory initiative. I think it was the right thing to do. And I think it's Absolutely. turned out to be very well. Yeah, for sure, Chris. And let's let's get to that. But I'd like to go back to um, you being dropped off at the jazz club uh, as a kid. Do you think you, you've played guitar since you were 16? Uh, is that do you think that's where you got a love of music? Or, and your dad obviously was a musician as well? Absolutely. And and when I was in high school, I had a band and we, we were we were starting to get some traction what performing you around. You got to give the name. We were called Kytus. Kytus. Kytus, okay. which is which is I can't even remember. It, it was a Greek god of something or other, one of the minor <laughs> Debbie gods. But we liked the name, and of course, and we ad <laughs> adopted it. You know, we, it went with that whole '70s vibe, you know. And uh, uh, we did, but I, I'll never forget. Um, and something I actually tell my children, who are also musicians, my dad, who didn't pay a lot of attention, he was a busy surgeon, didn't pay a lot of attention to my music. One day, my band, we were rehearsing in our basement. My dad actually stopped by to listen and he stood in a doorway and I could tell he was concentrating, listening. And so I was in glory, you know, and I just was riffing on the guitar and everything else trying to impress my dad. And then uh, that weekend, he actually took me aside and said, let's go for a walk. And he said, um, I've got something that's hard for a dad to tell a son, but I feel it's important to tell you. And I said, what's that dad? Now my dad had played Carnegie Hall. He went to, college on a musical scholarship. He was a concert quali quality violinist. He said, um, I have to tell you, you're not good enough. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, my God. The air went right out of my blood. He said, I don't mean you're not good enough. You're good enough to play in hotel uh, ballrooms the rest of your life um, or, you know, cocktail lounges and the occasional thing like that. But you're probably not good enough to kind of live, uh, to provide for your family the way you'd like to be able to provide for your family. You will live hand to mouth uh, yeah. with your musical talent. And he says, I'm saying for someone who recognized that in, in himself, and actually I played Carnegie Hall, my dad said, and yet I recognized that wasn't the way I was gonna raise my family. He said, but I still play and I love every minute of playing. Mm -hmm. He said, so make music your hobby, but not your vocation. And you know what, Matt, it's taken me a long time, but he was absolutely right. And I thank goodness he's passed away now, but. I, I thank him for that. That was great advice. I have played music my whole life. I play in bands. I have fun with it, but I don't have to feed my family earning, you know, yeah. you know, there's an old joke in music. It's a great industry. You can make hundreds of dollars in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a hard thing to hear. But it reminds me uh, in, in my life when I was in college, uh, I was on the track to medical school and I was doing volunteer work with a lab um, at UC Santa Barbara. We were doing like research into collagen and how it forms and repairing it. And one day my, the, the professor who ran the lab kind of sat me down in his office and said, you shouldn't go to med school. You're just not into this. You know, I can tell your head is somewhere else. And uh, he was right. You know, I wanted to be a writer. I, I, you know, that was my dream and I was going down the wrong path. So 
uh, all things being equal, it was good advice. It was hard to hear at the time, but you know, a similar kind of situation, I think, to what your dad did for you. Yeah. Did you uh, in high school, like, or did you um, early on have a financial sense? Are you a guy with numbers or like, what was it? Um, tell us about like, why did, what, what led you to sort of the, the Wall Street, um, you know, angle? So that, 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 that's an interesting question. I've always had an interest in technology. And, um, and in fact, my early years in law practice was focused on technology, all range of technologies. I had clients that were doing really interesting work in biotech, interesting work in uh, one of my clients uh, was, was the leading developer of, uh, of a global positioning technology. So not exactly in the financial service area. Yeah. But I had always been interested in financial services as well. Obviously, I, I, I conducted most of my uh, career as a lawyer in New York, the financial capital. A lot of the uh, energy legal work is directed for that. And I'm a great admirer of markets. I, I really believe that markets are innate to human experience. You know, humans have been trading since the dawn of time. I, I remember being in a dentist's office and picking up a copy of Archaeology um, Today and reading about a, an interesting find in uh, Egypt of a large cache of building blocks for the pyramids that apparently they either cracked or they weren't used so they were dumped in a hole and they found them. And what they found on them was markings that were stamped into them of which broker and which marketplace those stones had been supplied for the pharaohs to build their thing. So from the beginning of you know recorded history, yeah. you know, humankind have relied on markets and intermediaries, and that's always fascinated me. And so um, uh, in my legal work and then my subsequent career on, on Wall Street, the, the, the sort of junction of technology, finance, and law slash regulation has always been sort of where my 35 now going on 38 year career has led me. And it's an area where I, I have uh, like, you know, it's, it's funny, you turned away from medicine because you went into writing and that's where your aptitude was. And, and your by the way, your recent book is fabulous. Uh, I've enjoyed it so much and I learned so much from it. You're, you're a great writer and we all find our way to where our aptitude is and this sort of triangle of, of finance, technology, and, and, and law and regulation has really been where I've lived my career, and it's where I, I enjoy it very much. And you and I both, on, on different ends of the spectrum, though, we went through the fire in the, the 2008 financial crisis, as you had mentioned. Um, the swaps market was a huge part of what, what kind of brought the global economy to its knees. Um, it was an unregulated market up to that point. You were at GFI, which, uh, as you mentioned, um, had one of the largest um, credit default swap trading platforms at the time. Um, tell, tell everybody like what brokers do, first of all, just quickly. And, and like we, you hinted at it before that like they're necessary in certain markets. Um, and then you must have a million great uh, financial crisis stories, but I'd love to hear one of them or your favorite if you if you have just a second for it. Sure. So, so brokers are, are basically old-fashioned intermediaries. And if you take almost, you know, any walk of human life, uh, intermediaries exist because they take friction out of a system. They, they help uh, uh, move information from those seeking to understand uh, where the market is to those who are willing, uh, want to engage in the market but need better information. So brokers serve an important role. And as I say, they've been around since the time of the pharaohs. I imagine they'll be around to the end of time in, in some form or other. And it's funny, you know, we we go through phases of, of disintermediation of market only markets only to create new intermediaries to serve that that sort of very human role. And, and that's that was the role of GFI yeah, in, and in, I, the, in those markets. I had this thought um, of trying to connect your old life in at GFI with the broker community to crypto. And, and I wondered if you ever thought about it this way that brokers tend to be somewhat from what I gather sort of self-operating, you know, they have their clients there, they take them out to Yankees games and take them to dinner and make sure that they're, you know, they're the person they call when they've got a deal. So you're kind of a bit of a lone wolf. And then in crypto, you kind of have that same ethos as well. You know, you can do everything yourself. You know, you can, you are your bank, you know, you are, you own your wallet, you are doing transactions for yourself and you don't need somebody to, to facilitate those transactions for the most part. 
So I just wondered if that has ever occurred to you, like there, that there's a sort of a bit of a parallel there between the, the sort of people that might be interested in, in these both of these worlds. Yeah, I, I think there is. And um, but, you know, even so, if we we take the current evolution of the Internet, which is this Internet of value where people are looking to conduct, but put it in the broader context of the entire Internet that we've now been seeing expand for the last 30 years, you know, the first wave of the Internet, Internet of information was sought to disintermediate a lot of traditional players like Sears Roebuck in retail or, or Kodak in, in photography. And yet, it, and it succeeded in doing that. And yet there are new intermediaries, right? So in retail, now you've got Amazon providing that intermediation function or eBay. Um, and, and similarly, you know, we've got, we've got TikTok or we've got um, other intermediaries in disseminating information, uh, YouTube. And so, uh, you know, we go through phases of disintermediation and then the market finds its way back to intermediation. And I think human, um, development is always going through, you know, uh, 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 alternating of uh, phases of intermediation, disintermediation. I think that's a natural part of human development. Um, and I think there's something that's just very organic and natural about it. But I do yeah. want to talk, I do want to tell you that story you asked for about the financial crisis, because I think it does illustrate um, uh, a lot of you know, my view on the the right role for regulation and the right role for intermediation. So um, I remember receiving a call three days before Lehman Brothers fell, uh, fell and I was at GFI Group, the firm I, I described to you. And look, we were seeing pandemonium on the broking floor. And why was that? Because firms that were uh, either um, uh, uh, were firms that were worried about the fall of certain firms on Wall Street were buying credit default protection in case they fell. And the price of that protection was rising dramatically hour by hour. Uh, now, what is credit default? Credit default swaps are basically like an insurance product against the failure of a firm to meet its, its financial obligations. You might think about Wall Street in those days was tied together with a series of grappling hooks. If one firm fell down, the building fell down, it would take other firms. Yeah. And so uh, three days before I got a call from a senior official at the New York Federal Reserve saying, what do you, first of all, remind us, what do you guys do? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, we, we operate the marketplace for this. And, and, and the response was great. That's what we understood. So what are you seeing in the market? And I, you know, the answer was, what were we seeing this morning? Or what do we see now? What do we expect to see tonight? Because it's so dynamic. It's moving so fast. The price is rising rising. And he said, so I get it. So that indicates that there's increasing fear that some of these names like Lehman Brothers, you know, would would fail. And I said, exactly right. And he said, you know, it's fascinating. What you do is fascinating. And, and we'd really like to understand it better at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. Can you come by the bank and, and basically give us a 101 on your business? And I said to him, Absolutely yeah, and I said, amazing. I said, sure. I said, but I probably can't get there to maybe nine or 10 o'clock tonight because we're just dealing with global pandemonium. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm way too busy tonight. I think I've got a soccer game for my kid. Let's look in the diary. How does like October 20th look for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, three days later that weekend, Lehman Brothers was gone. Yeah, and and we, so we never just... got to do, do that one-on-one. But the point I want to make, Matt, is at the time, it was believed based upon banks like Lehman Brothers year and reports that the gross the total outstanding notional amount of, of uh, credit default swaps that would be triggered by a fail of Lehman Brothers was $400 billion. Wow. And if they wow. figured Lehman Brothers failure would be 400 billion, they basically extrapolated and said a failure of Goldman would be 800 billion and a failure of JP Morgan would be 1.2 trillion. And therefore they basically said, like like a fire company does, we need to wash down all these bu buildings with huge amounts of not water but liquidity, so that if if one fails, they can stay alive. But right. here's the point, Matt. Here's the most important point. Bruce Tuckman, a professor at NYU, who I hired to be the chief economist of the CFTC, did research that showed not the gross amount of a Lehman Brothers failure, but the net amount. If you offset all the positions would have been less than $9 billion. 
Wow. If we knew in 2008 that a failure of Lehman Brothers would not be 400 billion, but would be less than 9 billion, we would have different policy choices. The Federal Reserve could have written a check or it could have let them fail, knowing it would not have brought down all of Wall Street. Yeah. But we didn't have that information. And to me, that was the biggest eureka moment because I realized then that if a technology like the blockchain technology had been around and all of those obligations had been on it across Wall Street, across the global banking system, and we'd been able to net them down in real time, we would have had the clarity that we didn't have during the financial crisis. We would have had global policy options that we didn't have and quite possibly the financial crisis could have been averted or we could have used much more effective policy tools, but we didn't. It was the fog of war. It was a lack of clarity. And that over the next several years, I, I went to the CFTC in 2014, but I had, before that, it started to become a student of blockchain. In 2015, I put out a statement calling on Congress to adopt a do no harm approach to blockchain for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is it would help regulators do their job better. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point that's often uh, overlooked. Um, I love your description of Wall Street like being bound together with grappling hooks. Uh, that's very apt. And for anybody who doesn't know, the Federal Reserve Bank is the main regulator of Wall Street banks. Like they are supposed to know what they're doing. They're supposed to know what risks they have. They're supposed to know about their capitalization, all sorts of stuff. And for them to come calling you and be like, I don't know what's what are you guys doing? Can you tell me what's going on? And, I, you know, three days before Lehman failed, just to put the point on that story is just absolutely, um, it's remarkable. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, and then, um, so it's interesting that like uh, Dodd-Frank was kind of an intermediator, right? It created all these new entities in the swaps market to like make sure that everything was um, above board. And at the same time, Satoshi Nakamoto was writing his white paper and it was coming out. And that was one of the greatest disintermediators um, as you're talking about this blockchain breakthrough because people had tried to create digital currencies prior to Satoshi, but they just never got the recipe right. He nailed it with blockchain and with proof of work as a consensus mechanism. So it's really fascinating that there, like you say, there's these cycles and it's sort of like, okay, Wall Street was getting consolidated or, you know, much more regulated. And here we're going to have the birth of this new market that's going to bring millions of people into it and is still kind of struggling um, to figure, like people are struggling how to regulate it. Um, I don't want to jump ahead too much there, but I, I, so then I'd love to hear, um, you know, uh, you, tell us about, you know, coming to the CFTC and like you, you were just sort of saying you were starting to get into blockchain and, you know, understand it in 2015. So take us forward to there to then when you um, came to testify before, well, then you became chairman and then, you know, your testimony to Congress, I think, which is where you're uh, pulling your title of your book from and, and when you sort of went viral, which must have been yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, uh, so so um, following the crisis, I actually became a supporter of some of the core elements that Congress was considering to bring some important uh, uh, regulatory standards to that marketplace in which we were operating. And when Dodd-Frank passed in 2010, I put out a statement commending the Obama administration for its signing of the legislation for Congress for passing it. And they must have made note of that because in 2013, I was approached to consider serving at the US Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, which under, under Dodd-Frank had been given responsibility for 90% of the reforms to the swaps market with the SEC having the other 10%. Um, and I think that was the right allocation. And, and so again, I was contacted by the administration in 2013 after going through the Senate process and all that, I was actually sworn in in 2014. And by that time, you know, I've been really thinking carefully about uh, the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper. You know, interestingly, it rose out of the ashes of the financial crisis. I think there's an interesting relationship there. And by the way, uh, your own book, Matt, I think does a great job of actually explaining what blockchain is, distributed ledger technology, which is as important to all of this conversation as is crypto itself. Um, and and so, uh, you know, I was thinking about a lot of this when I was sworn in and joined the CFTC. And as I said, in 2015, um, I put out a statement calling for a really uh, an enhanced approach to the adoption of blockchain technology, not just for the private sector, but for the official sector. And in late 2015, the CFTC, under the leadership of my 
predecessor, Tim Massad, but with my support as a commissioner, and declared Bitcoin to be a commodity under CFTC jurisdiction. A very important moment, a watershed moment, you know, together with Ethereum, which you again cover very well in your book, those two cryptos are 65% of the market for crypto and they're both under CFTC jurisdiction. So yeah, it's very I remember important. that moment very well as you're right. It was a big, it was a watershed moment. And as a reporter, yeah, that, that um, got a lot of people's attention um, who maybe had been dismissing it or hadn't taken the time to kind of understand it. I think that put it like right in front of them. It was, and you know, the lead up to that was really important. We spent a lot of time at the commission thinking through that, uh, understanding it, calling in experts to better understand it. It was a very important moment. And I, I commend, and I, and remain, I do in my book, and I commend Tim Massett for his leadership on that. Um, uh, you know, I was appointed by, by Barack Obama and I'm proud to have been unanimously confirmed. I, I was surprised, but pleased to be reappointed by uh, President Trump, but to serve as chairman of the agency upon Tim Massett's uh, departure and um, uh, even more uh, delighted to have been unanimously confirmed the second time around. I like to joke that it, it proves one of two things, or perhaps two things, is that is Congress doesn't know what the CFTC does. And I hadn't annoyed too many of too many senators during my first two and a half years on the commission, but I was very proud to. I don't, not too many Trump appointees received unanimous confirmation. Yeah. I was yeah, that's uh, pleased great. to be. Pleased to be one of them. But right away, as I became chairman, I did uh, two things. Um, I created something that was somewhat unprecedented in the federal government, uh, and that was we created a, a specific fintech uh, uh, hub in the agency. We called it Lab CFTC. Mm -hmm. And the second thing we did was charged it right away to get itself and all of us up to speed as quickly as possible on crypto development and, and the markets for crypto globally and where it fit into our re regulatory landscape. We believed that we would be approached in 2017 or 2018 at the latest by some of our larger exchanges about creating futures on crypto. And the reason we believe that was going to happen was because some of our largest exchanges like CME had begun to build indexes on spot prices. And the reason exchanges build indexes is to ultimately build a derivative on that. A derivative, yeah, that's derivative the price input for the contract, basically. Exactly right. Exactly right. You know, the the what's called the spot market, which is the, you know, Im immediately settled market as opposed to the settled in the future or maybe in the future based on an option. Those markets are known as the spot market. And there are there are hundreds literally of marketplaces around the world where you can trade spot crypto futures exchanges bring together all that. And that's quite frankly, very common in commodities. Yeah. There are thousands of grain elevators around the world where, where farmers can sell their wheat, but there's one or two wheat futures exchanges. So it's very common for futures exchanges to bring together all those spot prices and create a futures market. And so we, 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 knew, we kind of knew this was coming and our goal in the first half of 2017 was to get ourselves, but also all our commissioners, all our senior directors up to speed. And so one of the things that's a, uh, a common practice at the CFTC, part of its regular routine, is the Friday morning market review session where our, our market experts come in and present to the commissioners and their senior staff movements in a basket of metals, agricultural, financial, um, and energy um, uh, markets. And right away we added to that crypto. And so we started getting regular reviews every Friday on movements in the market, explaining market structure, and then we would do periodic deep, deep dive. We even did in the summer of 2017, Matt, you'll love this. We actually got all our commissioners together in the room, the senior staff, and actually did some um, Bitcoin mining, at least a, a synthetic hypothetical Bitcoin mining to understand how mining worked. Yeah. So by the time we were approached by CBOE and CME in, in the summer and fall of, of 2017, as an agency, we were really getting up the learning curve. And so, I'm very proud of the fact that I think when we were approached about the the, the choice to allow the self-certification of a Bitcoin futures as an agency, we have become much more market intelligent than perhaps you know we had been not too too long before, or quite frankly, compared to some of our other fellow Washington regulators. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, the CFTC, maybe Congress not knowing what it was 
reminds me of how I always got annoyed when the New York Times would often refer to the CFTC as a backwater regulator. <laughs> uh, you never got much respect. But um, I did an also, interview with Bloomberg Radio with Tom Keen. Yeah. And he, he, he made that same reference. I let him have it. <laughs> I, we may be backward. I said we've been ahead on every product, every major financial product in the United States, ahead yeah. of every other agency since. Yeah, that's why it made me yeah. mad because I think you guys were doing really interesting stuff. And it's a fascinating world that if you don't take the time to understand it, you might just want to dismiss it. Um, but I think it's important also to remind people, even though it's only a few years ago, like prior to maybe mid-2017 when Bitcoin started going on a tear um, towards $20,000, it was really a bad word, you know, among a lot of people in the financial world. I know Bloomberg News was very conflicted about like giving it legitimacy. Uh, and, and it really like no banks would touch it, you know, like even to the point where you couldn't have a bank account that was connected to an exchange. And so... I think, you know, it's all not that long ago, five years or so, but it was really coming from a place that of serious mistrust. And some of that was earned because in, in the, uh, uh, you know, early uh, 20-teens, you know, it was being used in some awful activities on what's called Silk Road. Uh, yeah. And, and, and uh, the U.S. government, the, the DOJ, to its great credit, went after that pretty hard and, and shut a lot of that down. But that certainly gave uh, crypto, including Bitcoin, a bad rap. Now, what I would point out, and, and, and there's no there's no excuse for that, but what I point out is not too different than the early internet, which yeah. early on was used pretty much for pornography and, and other uh, awful activities. And sadly, it still is today, but yet its legitimate uses have been verified. You know, technology is somewhat moralistically neutral. It can be used for bad activities. It can be used for good. It's all how you use it. Uh, and, 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 and crypto and Bitcoin are no different, but that had given it a bad reputation. But Matt, you're very right. The reputation I'm... of it when you went to go testify before Congress, which you write so well about in your book, where you were after, later dubbed crypto dad, but were you, I know you, you write about being very nervous and like it's a big occasion and it's just you and um, the chairman of the SEC, uh, Jay Clayton, I think it was. What, do you remember what the kind of um, reputation of crypto was at that point? I know you were talking to, you know, testifying before Senator um, Elizabeth Warren, who still has a very negative opinion on it. Yep. So what, what was that like walking into that? Yeah, well, for, yeah, the context is, and, and your listeners, you understand that prior to walking into that testimony, we had just greenlighted Bitcoin futures against some pretty stiff uh, derision. And you mentioned the press. There were some elements of the press that basically said we were being reckless. There were fellow regulators here and abroad that felt what we were doing. And they may have been saying one thing to whispering in the press, another thing to me, but there was some negative. I remember uh, a major EU regulatory head calling me and saying, if you do this, you're legitimizing Bitcoin. No. And um, Christine I said Lagarde that, said that? Ah, uh, well, that level. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I said, look, I, nobody elected me. It's not for me to legitimize a legal product. It's for Congress to either declare it illegal or for us to create regulatory guidelines for it. And so I don't view myself as legitimizing as, as I'm putting regulatory standards around it. But we even received an attack from, from the industry. Uh, one big uh, financial service uh, leader, well-known one, took out a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal addressed to me as chairman of an agency saying, if you do this, you're going to cause chaos in the markets. Well, you won't name him, but I believe that was Tom Petterfee of Inter <laughs> Interactive Brokers. Uh, it, uh, it is for whom a man for whom I have great respect, and we've had we've patched things up. But he was pretty exercised over this. I remember that. We and I think they now offer Bitcoin and crypto trading on on the internet. They're one of the leading <laughs> platforms for crypto <laughs> trading. I think they make a lot of money on the work we did at the CFTC, although it was never our intention. So yeah. I guess good for them. <laughs> but anyway, so so that's the context of walking into a congressional hearing. I, and, and the other context is at the same time, the SEC under Chairman Jay Clayton was taking a very aggressive approach to what was called initial coin offerings or ICOs uh, with a really strong enforcement effort. So from the outside world, you've got Giancarlo at the CFTC, who seems to be crypto friendly because we created a regulatory regime for Bitcoin futures. You've got Jay Clayton, who's being very aggressive and appears to be crypto unfriendly. 
Yeah. And we're both walking in together. So as I as I explained in my book, one night over a cocktail, I told Jay, I said, look, either one of us is either going to be a goat or a jackass, depending on a particular senator's point of view. And by goat, I mean, you know, the greatest of all time. Yeah. Uh, and, and we all know what a jackass is. But I knew one of us was going to be one or the other. Um, but the fact of the matter is we were both defending our regulatory mandate and 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 uh, and, and quite, I think, uh, uh, loyal to our, our, our regulatory mandates. So here it is. I, uh, in preparation for that hearing, I prepared like a 48-page, 200-footnote summary of everything we had done to justify our decision. And when you do these hearings, uh, for folks in the audience, in front of you at, on the dais is, is a little box with a series of lights, a green light, a red light, and a yellow light. You've got five minutes to give your opening remarks. And after four minutes, it goes yellow. And when it goes red, you better stop talking or the gavel's coming down. Yeah. And I didn't know how I was going to summarize 48 pages and 200 footnotes into a five-minute summary. So I said, oh, heck with it. I'm going to do it differently. So the next morning, when it was my turn to speak, and there was all the senators assembled on that dais, including some like Elizabeth Warren and others, and, and behind us were had to be 200 people stuffed in that room under big lights. Uh, when my light went green, I said, senators... Last night, I submitted a lengthy paper explaining all the points of our self-certification of Bitcoin futures. I know I'm here as a head of a regulatory agency, but if you allow me, I just want to talk to you as a dad. And I explained that I had three kids in their early 20s, that we had tried to interest them in the stock market when they were younger with no interest whatsoever. And yet now all they want to do is talk about crypto. Yeah. And I said, we've just come back from a family ski trip with my nieces and nephews, and all young people want to do is talk about this. They're fascinated by it. And that's when I said, I think we owe it to this generation not to dismiss this interest with derision, but to actually dig into it, understand it, and respond with a thoughtful and well-informed policy response uh, and not dismiss it out of hand. And yeah. the words are barely out of my mouth. And I, my, my 1,000 Twitter followers went to like 45,000 <laughs> over the next three days. And they came up with all kinds of names for me, including Crypto Dad, which is the one yeah. that stuck the best. I love that. And before we go on, the favorite thing that you said in that little preemptive or uh, impromptu speech was um, because of, of the um, response you had seen from your kids and your nieces and nephews, you said that it made you realize that this was, it was social, it was cultural, it was human. And that's, that's near to my heart because that's exactly what I'm trying to do at Decentral is tell the stories of these people who I think are amazing and are doing really uh, just mind-blowing things and they're fascinating and to dismiss it, to, to dismiss crypto as you know, a Ponzi scheme or a scam is to dismiss all of these people who have been working so hard and who have already changed the world and are continuing to change the world. So anyway, I just thought that was incredibly well put. Uh, absolutely true. And you know, a few years ago, people have forgotten about this, but there was a movement called Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. And a lot of the folks involved in that movement really kind of aspired to a kind of new type of self-government. They would hold meetings where people would converse, but they would have different sort of rules of engagement, hand signals and others. And their goal was to kind of raise consciousness about issues of concern, but to do so in a kind of little d democratic manner that was very organic. And in a lot of ways, this technology is taking that a step further. It, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's DeFi, decentralized finance, or whether it's, it's that, that sort of uh, individualistic approach, but it's, but it's also searching for a type of new form of community using the internet as, as its platform. And so there is definitely a cultural aspect to this. And you know, the thing about cultural aspects, just like whether it was the war in Vietnam when I grew up or other things, you can dismiss them. You know, when you're old geezers like me, although I try not to dismiss them because I'm a dad, but they, they don't go away. You know, the, 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 the civil rights movement of the 1960s didn't go away. You know, it, 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 it's, and, and these people, they're in their 20s today, but they'll be in their 30s tomorrow. And eventually they'll be in government agencies and they'll be head of agencies. The, the concerns they have today, they're gonna carry with them into adulthood long after we're gone. And yeah. so I think we dismiss them at our peril. I think we need to, we need to stand up and listen better and not yeah. dismiss them. I think I, I agree with you. And um, 
it's a bit cliche to say this if you're in crypto, but it's still early. Uh, you hear that all the time. And it reminds me of um, when we were coming up with the idea for Decentral, um, somebody put it to me this way. Crypto is like being in San Francisco in 1969. You know, you know something's going on. You might not be sure what it is, but something is definitely going on. And I think that really speaks to the cultural movement that you were just talking about. Um, That's a great analogy. I hadn't heard that, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna adopt that. That's a okay. great one. It, it, I think it must be like what it was like to be in, in San Francisco in '69. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let, now let's move on. Like, so you your CFTC career comes to an end. You're a bit exhausted, as you write about in your book. You need to recharge. But then, I think the blockchain and all of your experience with with crypto had just kind of. I mean, did you have the idea for the digital dollar project prior, or was that something that you just kind of worked out on your own after you got out of the agency? Yeah. So, like, I came out of the agency uh, with it clear in my mind that something was going on in the private sector. And it was clear in my mind that nothing was going on in the official sector. You know, we, we, we had this huge gap in awareness of the transformational nature of this technology. And by the way, I believe this technology is more than just what some people may see as some new fetish asset class called crypto. I think it's a fundamental new architecture for financial services, banking and money, money itself. And that goes back to the blockchain that you write about so well. It's a fundamentally different architecture. And um, uh, and so I was concerned, and I, and I still am concerned, about the gap between the private sector's rapid acceleration of this innovation and the official sector's kind of somewhat out of touch. Uh, it's uh, grudging, about. almost. Oh, it is. It's grudging. And it's still grudging. I mean, there's more and more people are getting it, but it's still grudging. And my worry is that that's not the way when the United States does big technological things, we do them well. We do them well when actually the official sector and the private sector work in tandem. Mm -hmm. Call, you know, that's how we were able to explore um, the lunar landscape. That's how we were able to ex explore the first wave of the Internet. You know, it was DARPA and the Department of Defense working with the private sector that allowed the United States to dominate the innovation of the first phase of the Internet. But it's that grudgingness that actually made sure we missed out on the second wave of the internet, the internet of things. The United States is nowhere in 5G technology because there was, there was not an understanding that 5G technology was anything more other than a better TV picture. Mm -hmm. As many people saw it, it's actually the technology that allows devices to talk to devices and it's a very important technology. The United States missed it. And I was afraid, and I still remain somewhat afraid, the United States will miss its full ability to play a leading role in this third wave of the internet, the internet of value, because of this somewhat dismissive tone that many government regulators. Now, some of that is understandable. Why? Because when you're the unassailed leader in the old technology, it's actually hard to say, you know, we need to be willing to cannibalize some of that to help along the new architecture, right? There's no question the United States dominated the 20th century financial support for the globalization of global markets. You know, uh, the dollar is king. The the our American banks are the leaders. You know, we dump and it gives us sanction power. It gives us all these. You know, makes makes our standard of living in the United States higher than other countries because the dollar is the reserve currency. So we have all these advantages coming out of the old system the old architecture. It's hard to say we need to actually embrace the new architecture. Yeah. Although there's plenty of examples of not yielding the advantages from your old one while you experiment with the new one, which is what I advocate for, but but it's grudging. And so a few months, what is it, two months after coming out of the CFTC, Daniel Gorfine and my brother, Charlie Giancarlo, who was a, a leading figure in the first wave of the internet out in California, um, started kicking around some ideas and eventually led to a Wall Street Journal op-ed in October of 2019 by Daniel Gorfine and me that was entitled, if we can land a man on the moon, we can send the dollar into cyberspace. <laughs> uh, great title, uh, the editors at the Wall Street Journal came up with it. But, yeah. um, but our argument was that China's launch of a digital yuan should be seen as a Sputnik moment for the US government 
to say that it needs to embrace this new innovation and work with the private sector to put the United States in as a leading innovator in this area. Even if we never launch a digital currency, yeah. we need to be a leading innovation, leading innovation in this. Let's just talk about that a little bit so people can can stay with us here. So obviously you have cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ether or the thousands of others that fluctuate in value. You know, they're very they can be extremely volatile, but what they are is the payment leg on so many of these DeFi transactions or, you know, you're investing in them. So they're obviously, it's pretty obvious, they're the money component to uh, blockchain transactions. If the United States um, suddenly issued a digital dollar, it would be stable, it would be pegged to the value of the US dollar, which really doesn't move much at all. But it would also now be the, the payment leg on all of these transactions within the crypto ecosystem and, and could, you know, I, I think it would be an amazing um, sort of ratification of this. And I think it's something that the government uh, should def is probably definitely moving towards. Um, so that's, that's what we're talking about. And it's right. sometimes referred to as a central bank digital currency. Is that, is that what you, the term you guys are using these days? Yeah, so, so um, yes, uh, or, or we actually coined the phrase the digital dollar, which has been picked up by many since, including for something that we don't advocate. Much catchier. <laughs> yeah, but it makes a lot more sense. I mean, some people use it to refer to the Federal Reserve actually opening bank accounts for retail participants. We don't have a position on that one way or the other, but that's not what we're referring to when we're talking about digital dollar. We're talking about what you just referenced, basically a digital currency like a stable coin or a cryptocurrency, but with the difference being it would have the full faith and credit of the United States government. It would be a, 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 tr a true digital form of fiat money. It would be a, basically a digital form of a paper dollar bill. When you go to the sandwich shop and buy a, 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 a corned beef sandwich, you pay for it with digital money. That money goes directly from your mobile device into the digital cash register of that shop. And that shopkeeper can turn around and pay a supplier immediately rather right. than waiting 30 days for the money to arrive on a credit card transaction and paying 3% for that credit card transaction. Yeah, I was just going to make that point that it's like people might be like, well, wait, I pay for stuff electronically all the time. What about when I swipe my debit card? And that's true. But what's happening on the back end of the, I like to call those electronic payments, right? Because it, it still takes people three days roughly to um, reconcile that payment. What we're talking about with a digital dollar is it would be reconciled almost instantaneously. And, and so the, the time, yeah, the time factor is what's really important about digital. Um... Right. So, so if you go for a ride in a Chevy Caprice and then get out and get into a Tesla, it still feels <laughs> like the same ride. But underneath that hood is a completely different architecture, a completely different propulsion system. Yeah. And in a similar way, that electronic transaction that you do today, you put your, your mobile device up to a reader it's an electronic transaction, but it's what it's really doing is sending a series of messages to a series of banks who have to verify your identity, have to verify the account sufficiency, have to then make a debit and a credit to another bank. And then that bank's got to verify that they made the credit and then credit to the merchant. And all of that costs money. It takes time, sometimes as much as 30 days. And mo even though it, for you, it was instantaneous, but right. most importantly, it's highly exclusive. That is, if you don't have identity, you can't use that system because they can't give you a bank account. They can't verify who you are. And while in the United States, we only have 5%, still 5% is 5% of our population without sufficient identity for the system. In a world of eight and a half billion people, a billion, a billion and a half do not have identity sufficient to have access to financial services. And that's a global tragedy, yeah. but it's built into the existing architecture. The existing architecture requires identity. Digital money does not, in order to operate, require identity. Now, we may want, as a policy choice, to have identity in certain transactions over a certain size, et cetera, et cetera, but the system itself doesn't require identity, which means so much more people could use this new system that have been, that have been historically excluded from the existing architecture. Absolutely. But let me ask you this, and um, Ryan Selkis of Masari has spoken really eloquently about this concern. If the Federal Reserve started issuing digital dollars by definition, I think those have to be linked to a blockchain and they have to, there has to be a record of how they are, you know, where they go and what transactions you're making. So how do you do this without um, increase, like creating this kind of incredibly invasive surveillance state where you, you might have the government 
uh, on the trail of like everything that you're spending money on? How do you how do you prevent that? Well, first of all, that is a great and true and legitimate and very valid concern. One that we are very concerned about the digital dollar project. We've put forward privacy principles for discussion. And I think it's a very, very legitimate concern. We don't want the internet of value to in some ways follow the internet, uh, the first wave of the internet that went from kind of a free state to one where all our transactions, are, all of our uh, uh, communications online are uh, censored, uh, uh, certainly surveilled, in some cases censored by big tech companies. And we don't want the same thing to happen in the, in the digital future of money, whether it's big tech conducting those transactions through some form of stable coins or big government surveilling our spending. Because in a, you know, we, we talk about our, our civil liberties in the United States, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, but in a capitalist economy, you can only exercise those rights through economic liberty and economic freedom. And we, we don't, if we have censorship, if we have surveillance, we don't have those civil rights. So it's a very, very important concern. But here's what I would tell your listeners. I think the same technology that gives us this opportunity that provides this new architecture also provides a way to move away from the current systems requiring, requiring identity as a first step in every transaction to going to actually identity as a later step in a transaction if there's an indication of illicit activity. Hmm. What do I mean by that? Once you have everything on a blockchain, you don't need identity to get permission to use the system. We can use pattern recognition and big data analysis at law enforcement agencies to see patterns of financial activity that may indicate illicit conduct. And then we can demask and get identity and rather than getting identity as a first step. And it may sound a little bit unusual in our financial system where we currently require identity. But look at other walks of human life where the law, re law enforcement response is not to get identity in every case, only if there's uh, illicit conduct. Take, take highway safety, for example. We don't stop you before you get on the highway to toll booth and say, what's your social security number? Where do you bank? Where do you live? Okay, now you may get on the highway in case you do something wrong. People freely get on the freeway and conduct their transportation. If, however, they do something that indicates to law enforcement illicit conduct, i.e. speeding, reckless driving, broken taillights, then law enforcement may stop you and get your identity. Identity not as a first step, but as a later step after there's a, there's a pattern of improper conduct. And so if we take the same approach to blockchain-based financial transactions, we don't necessarily need to get identity for everybody who accesses a financial, we don't need identity for somebody who buys that $10 sandwich with a digital dollar. But you know what? If for some reason that shop is engaged in activity, then it may be appropriate for law enforcement, the notion of probable cause to find out the identity of people involved in transactions. So uh, again, the same technology that we're using in the internet, pattern recognition, big data analysis, may give us the tools to do away with identity as a first step in every transaction. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting approach. I hadn't heard that before. Um, so yeah, that's encouraging. Um, just before we go, um, where do you see, uh, you talking about in your book about different ways that regulation um, you know, can work in, in this crypto world. Um, I, I think, uh, I think you said, you know, basically congressional action is kind of necessary at, at some point because this is a such a new technology. Um, one thing that, that made me think of uh, when I was reading that part of, of your book was, I believe as chairman of the CFTC, you were on the um, Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC, right? Which was a thing that yeah. Dodd-Frank created that had like the head of the Treasury Department, the head of the SEC, the CFTC, um, OCC, all these different government regulations uh, heads that would meet just to, you know, kind of be like, hey, is there a global financial crisis brewing um, again? Do you think something like that is what you're envisioning for crypto? Uh, no, I actually, I think the Financial Stability Oversight Council is, a, is an important creation of Dodd-Frank for its consultative purposes. And just as you said, hey, what are we seeing in the market? Uh, you know, how is, say, uh, the war in Ukraine affecting margins of commodity brokers. I, I would imagine if I were at the CFTC now, FSOC would be saying, hey, CF, 
PC come to a, and present to us what you're seeing in terms of margin breaches in the world's commodities because the prices of oil and wheat are skyrocketing. Yeah. So uh, it's very important for that. But there's with this, but it's really a committee. There's no infrastructure there. I don't think the FSOC has the wherewithal to actually become a frontline regulator. It's 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 an assembly body. I, I, the agencies that really have the type of deep institutional chops, the analytical capability, the economist capability, the market surveillance capability, are agencies like the CFTC and the SEC. So. Um, I, I do think they've got an important role to play in this new innovation. I think Congress needs to give them a clear set of instructions that they need to treat this like other new innovations, not be hostile to it, find pathways forward for it to work. Um, that doesn't mean go easy, but it means you know set the right standards, create pathways forward. One of the things we did at the CFTC, when we first greenlighted Bitcoin futures, we created actually something called heightened scrutiny. We didn't give crypto an easier time. We actually gave it a slightly harder time. We actually, the, the pathway to getting a, a, a crypto product registered at the CFTC and, and, and on an exchange is actually at a slightly higher incline. But the difference was, if, if you use the analogy of a path, we lit the path. We announced, here are the standards. They're slightly higher. But if you satisfy them, you get the green light. So we created the path forward. It wasn't an easier path, but we created the path forward. We told people how to do it. I think that should be Congress's instruction to the CFTC, to the SEC. People shouldn't be playing Russian roulette with Jeopardy. You know, you get you, you get the compliance right, you're good. But if in the absence of clear rules, you get it wrong, you're suddenly uh, on the hook of an enforcement action. I think regulators have a duty, even if they need to take some time, they have a duty to write clear regs and rules so that participants in the market know what they're in for. Even if that what they're in for a higher uh, challenge, that's fine, but they know what they're in for. What's been your experience um, as you've been going to Congre Congress, uh, Congress, Congress people with the Digital Dollar Project? Are you encouraged by like what you're seeing? Are, are, are people in Congress learning about this and are they coming back to you with better questions or what, what's that been like? So the first thing I'll tell your audience is having served in Washington and consider myself a fairly nonpartisan person, uh, um, politicians and, and regulators are like any other walk of life. In other words, some of them are ahead of the technological curve and are comfortable with technological innovation. Others are scared to death of it and they're still using flip phones. And the broad middle of them are you know, somewhere in the middle of that. And it doesn't matter whether a Republican or Democrat or uh, a, a, a congressman or a senator or a regulator, they just fall along that the human divide. There was a great book, Matt, you, when you and I come up called Crossing the Chasm, that has this sort of bell curve of when people come to technology and they're the early adopters and the late adopters, and, and most of us are in the middle. Um, uh, the, 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 we're now, I think, in the middle phase in Congress. I think we've moved beyond the disdain phase that I faced back in 2017, 2018. I think many Congress men and women are getting up to speed faster. I don't expect legislation to pass this year. It's an election year. And quite frankly, after 4th of July, nothing's going to pass um, because there's an election in November. But I do expect in 2023 Congress to take some action. I've, I've met, I, I had the privilege just last week to be invited to speak at a dinner. For, and this is something I was very pleased to see. Five Republican senators, five Democrat senators. In a, in a small room, private dinner, there was no publicity about it, but they were there and they were laughing and joking with one another, which tells us they do get along on, on, on things. Some of that, you know, hostility to each other is for show, it's to satisfy the base. But when it comes down to issues like this, Republicans and Democrats are working together, they're getting up to speed. And I think in 2023, you'll see some legislation. And just lastly, on the digital dollar project, where, where do you see that? Can you spitball any kind of like where, where your hopes are that may like, or how seriously are you being taken at the Federal Reserve, at the Treasury? And do you think within three to five years, we might see that or sooner or? Yeah, a lot more seriously than we were when we started two years ago, Matt. Uh, we're part of pretty much every conversation now around how to structure a US central bank digital currency and what should be there. I think we're still years away from a decision to deploy a central bank digital currency. But I think we've passed the point 
of arguing that the United States needs to lead in the technological development. You know, do you think it could come down to apparent. something like like the Treasury selling a digital Treasury bond to the primary dealers, and then um, you know, and then introducing a digital dollar in that process? Could it be something absolutely. like that? Absolutely, I, I think you'll absolutely see wholesale use yeah. of digital currency sooner rather than you perhaps see retail use. But you know, it, it's clear that China not only aims to deploy a central bank digital currency domestically in China, but throughout its Belt and Road Initiative. They are going to create a digital currency in a box that countries around the world that don't wish to ever be subject to the type of really uh, crippling sanctions that the US is using the dollar to do now against Russia. And so you'll see countries like, like uh, Venezuela and Cuba, and some that are even not so much in the newspapers, adopting Chinese technology for digital currency. And our US law enforcement agencies realize that's going to create a world that will you know, gradually dissipate the, the far-reaching impact of the dollar. And so it's really becoming clear that the United States needs to lead in this technological evolution. And that's something to us at the Digital Dollar Project. That was our first goal. And, and we think that's now been realized. Now we're moving on to our secondary objective, and that's to talk about the values that need to be built into a US central bank digital currency, a digital dollar. And foremost of those is true privacy for legitimate, for legal financial transactions. Yeah, that's a, that's a great place to leave this, Chris. Uh, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, best of luck with the digital dollar project and everything else you're going, uh, that you're doing. And everybody, this is the book, Crypto Dad. It's a great read. Um, Chris has got a ton of great stories um, and it's just been a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure for me. See you All again right. soon. Yes, for sure. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.